You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Quarterly. Hi, I'm Luke Collins, an executive editor with McKinsey Publishing. I'm in Miami with Aaron DeSmet, a principal in our Houston office and the co-leader of our organization design practice globally. With Aaron is Chris Gagnon, a principal in our New Jersey office. Today, we're discussing one of their favorite topics, agility. More specifically, we'll look behind the issue of organizational agility, which has been the subject of several recent McKinsey Quarterly articles. Aaron, Chris, thanks for your time today. Nice to be here, Luke. Thank you. So why is this a topic now? You know, we, companies have obviously always had to be adaptive to the environment in which they operate, change over time, but it seems like suddenly the need to be agile is more important than ever. What's happened? The pace of change has gotten a lot faster. It's just a lot more intense. Yeah, but you, you look at uh, you know, the statistics on how long companies last in the Fortune 500. They've dropped so precipitously that all of our clients are talking to us about pace of change. Doesn't matter industry, doesn't matter geography, nothing matters. Yeah, CEO tenure, way down. Yeah. And, so. is that, and is that a result of, I mean, we can run through the gamut of reasons, uh, digitization, increasing globalization, companies looking well beyond their traditional borders. But is short-term is short-term thinking? Is it just a confluence of factors? Well, I, I tell you, I, I've tried to lay out the arguments for why that is in a number of talks, and uh, I short-circuit it every time because as soon as you say it, everybody nods their head in the audience. I mean, everybody knows and feels what's going on, and it's all the things you described. So, uh, against that backdrop, McKinsey's been doing a large amount of research, utilizing a big tool that we have, Organizational Health Index. Um, tell us about some of the research that's been undertaken and what that seems to be finding about how companies should be operating. Well, I, I lead the team that runs the OHIs globally, which is a fascinating uh, database. I would argue it's the largest database of how companies run themselves in, in the world. And uh, people suggest things all the time that we might want to measure or add to it. And most of them don't actually add much to our predictive ability or ability to explain things. the true answer here is uh, we're looking at this more because clients suggested it. And when we created a simple index for speed, clients said, boy, we need to look at speed. We need to pay more attention to it. We create a simple index. At the same time or shortly thereafter, we said, well, if we're measuring speed, we ought to measure stability as well. We created an index there. What did surprise us is we kind of assumed that speed and stability would be antagonistic. And there were, sure, there, there's a, a set of companies that are so fast and crazy and chaotic, you know, that you think of them as like typical startups, and there are companies that are, you know, bureaucratic and, you know, so stuck in their ways that not much changes. But there was this really neat group of companies who had both. And in fact, that neat group of companies seems to be the, arguably the best performers. Oh, by far. I mean, it's. I mean, the the thing that Chris said that's that's really noteworthy is we can test things all the time. And if you just want to find something that correlates with something else, that's easy. If you want to say this actually is predictive and explanatory of what we find above and beyond what we already know, almost nothing turns out. People say, "Oh, test this." Nope. Test this other idea. Nope. And there's like, well, does it not correlate? Well, no, it correlates, but it looks like it's just correlating because good companies do lots of good stuff and they're good at that too. But this one's different. 
This one looks like it's actually driving a completely different behavior and experience and performance level, which is relatively, relatively, if you emphasize speed, and we have some very specific questions on that, and if you at the same time emphasize stability, and we also have some very specific questions on that, if you can do both, you have hit a sweet spot that will lead you to far and away outperform anybody who's just doing one or the other. And of course, at this point, a lot of people will say, well, hang on, how can I have both? I can't have my cake and eat it too. So how, talk to me then about the definition that you place on, on I guess, organizational agility, because McKinsey seems to be defining it in a very particular way, at least in terms of how organizations should think about it. Well, um, take speed as a proxy for how responsive, nimble, and dynamic the organization is. And speed is the best proxy we have to measure it. Just go fast, on lo in lots of ways and on lots of dimensions, go fast. Going fast does not mean that you have to be completely chaotic and unstable. And in fact, what we saw is the best companies create what we've started to return, refer to as a stable backbone. And uh, what that backbone, I don't want to seem like we got all the answers here. We're working this you know, with our clients live and, and looking at some fascinating companies and what they do. But if you were to draw commonalities, you'd say what that stable backbone seems to do most of the time is take care of people. It, it answers the, the what's in it for me questions like how am I going to get evaluated, how am I going to get paid, how am I going to get developed. And the best organizations seem to say, don't worry about that. We got that taken care of. You, get ta you have a home, and that home doesn't change. Our strategies may change all the time. The things we do to be fast and, and uh, responsive to the market may change, but your home's not going to change. Relax. What you see in some really agile companies is that, uh, well, first they have a matrix structure, which is, which is kind of important. There's a lot of companies who really don't like the idea of a matrix, and so they pretend they don't have one. But almost all big, complex global companies have a matrix, whether they want to admit it or not, um, which means if, I'm, if I live in this company, I have a sense that I have more than one boss. Now, I may only have one real boss who hires and fires me, but there's a sense that I answer to and am accountable to multiple people on multiple dimensions, okay? And in many cases, what we've seen that agile companies do is they'll have, give people a permanent home, say in a function, but then they'll have some other dimension be the one who's giving them most of their day-to-day -day marching orders. Mm -hmm. there's, one, there's one company uh, we worked with, with, and we totally redesigned everything. They had a very complex matrix. We made it very simple. It's a functional organization, but also has products, product lines. The product lines are the most important primary dimension, and they own virtually no people. 99, over 99% of the people report into functions, other functions. The product lines, however, have most of the decision authority. They get to set pricing. They get to say what people work on. They get to make capital allocation decisions. And, but the people's homes are in the function. And what they work on is they work on the things important to the product lines. It leads you to an idea that I'm, I'm scared to death to utter on a podcast to be recorded for all history, um, uh, which is uh, we all grew up um, learning from Sloan that structure followed strategy. 
And of course, that's still got to be true. Your, your structure is designed to deliver on your strategy, but I think it's in a different way today. It used to be, if you said we want to get really good geographically, you'd go to a geographic organization. If you wanted to get really good at product, you'd go to a product organization. Today, strategy changes too fast for that. And so I think what these organizations have in common is that they try to provide uh, a, a stable organization that can take, that can hold a flexible, dynamic, ever-changing world so you don't have to reorganize, you know, every time you, you think your market strategy needs to change. Mm -hmm. change. Mm -hmm. and, and the way that you've been describing that, uh, Aaron, is, is with the smartphone analogy, the idea that that the company fundamentally has an operating system that evolves much sort of slowly over time, incrementally, yep. and then on top of that, you're plugging apps into it. You're doing, exactly. you're exactly. sort of doing more dynamic things on top of that operating system. Right. Most of the things you're, you do with your phone is an app, and, and those change all the time. And so any, uh, any company that tries to figure out its strategy and this is, this is the old Sloan days, just as Chris was saying. Figure out the strategy and then design that and hardwire it in. If, if you try to hardwire in everything you want your company to do or organization to be able to execute into what is effectively the hardware and operating system, you're going to find that you've just designed a, a, a phone or an organization in this case that's obsolete by the time you've implemented it. And so what you need is, just like a smartphone, I've got a smartphone and it can do new things that I hadn't even dreamed of, that the app didn't even exist, the idea for it didn't even exist when I was designing the phone. But now I have a phone and somebody has an idea and they can design an app in a week or two and I can suddenly do something on the phone that I'd never thought I needed to. And these apps are really the flora and fauna of modern corporate life, right? Initiatives, teams, special projects. I think in some ways they used to be thought of as the purview of, you know, upper middle management. Now you'll find Bellman and hotels on, you know, teams uh, trying to improve the customer check-in experience, right? This is, this is how you keep up with a fast-changing world. And the... Uh, the, the false uh, goal of alignment, you know, th this idea that you'd set a magical strategy and you would design an organization and design jobs and compensation systems and everything would fall in line in this very engineered way uh, just isn't an idea for the modern world. Mm -hmm. Does it, uh, is it confronting for some uh, large organizations, somewhat tradition-bound, et cetera, for managers, executives working in those organizations? Oh, yeah. Adjusting? I would say it's hugely problematic for them. If, if that's, now, you, you probably need something that's stable that you can rely on. But if you, want, if you want predictability and you want things not to change, forget it. You were born in the wrong yeah, century. Yeah, you were born in the wrong century. The, the one thing, I, I remember um, uh, doing a, a research report on what's really changed as a result of the internet. This was still in the internet boom in the ninth, late 90s. And what I came back with is I said, look, I know there's lots of internet companies, but it's, in some ways it's kind of silly because, you know, after the, after the telephone was invented, there are a few telephone companies. But yes, everyone's going to need to use the internet for sure. But everyone uses the telephone now. And there are only a few telephone companies. The only thing the internet's really done, besides a few companies that really will be internet companies, what it's really done is dramatically lowered transaction cost and interaction costs. You can now interact in different ways and share data and information globally in a way that you couldn't before. That's different, and that has increased 
the speed, not only the speed, but the nature of interactions to create this emergent complexity that, that is actually looping on itself and actually fueling more complexity and more emergent properties that you could have never predicted, more fast cycle turbulence. And that's part of what's, so if, if you want that kind of stability that you're talking about, which is things aren't going to change, forget it. Yeah, we, we, we went to one of my favorite companies that, that we can't name, but uh, said, how do you innovate so quickly? And they said, well, how, how do you measure our innovation? And we said, well, look, this and this and this, and there's like four things. And they said, oh, well, you missed the 32 we started that didn't work. Right. Um, and, and, you know, the, the amount, the, this notion that companies could even run themselves using very similar processes, and if the cycle time shows up differently in our research in, in the speed, it's a different place, right? The, the, the tolerance for inaction uh, in these places is just non-existent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we hear a lot about the whole fail fast, uh, and it seems like uh, these companies that are in that sweet spot by the way, it's one one thing though. It's fail fast and learn from it. Well, yes, exactly. Right? It's not just, fail, it's not fail, just fail small, fail, right. <laughs> fail fast, and learn from it. And sometimes fail multiple times before you get it right. Yeah. And, and make smart decisions about when to cut it and say this just isn't working, or we should try again. Yeah. And I think a lot of companies, um, when they say we need to embrace failure, well, I, I don't. I'm not sure you're embracing failure so much. Mm. Is you're you're willing to try things that don't work the first time. Right. Right, and and that's different because you think about uh, think about an athletic team, any athletic team. What if they never practiced? Do you realize we hire people and we 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 tell them you just have to show up and perform. You never get to try. You never get to just try it out it's and game, practice. It's game day. It's every always day. game day. And it's kind of like well, that's that's hard. You get people who inherently are like, well, on game, I'm not going to try a new play on game day. Right, uh, the brand new play that might be brilliant. I'm not going to try. I, I would have to try it in practice first. Yeah. Make sure we knew how to execute it. So you have companies that, well, if you take that and you really have everyday game day, don't try the new play that you scale up immediately and then fail. That's a massive failure. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to really fail in small contained ways. Yeah, yeah a, I, like you, I'm deeply uncomfortable with this language around embracing failure. I. I'd never experienced failure as anything but at least a little bit unpleasant. But there is something about creating a culture in which, you know, in, 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 ex, there are experiments in the scientific mindset. You're, you're learning something, you're trying to drive through, but you're telling the truth about what happened. And I think the most agile organizations really value the ability to tell each other the truth. And the, 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 the bureaucratic ones, you know, you get assigned to a project, you better make it work because you and the project are the same, right? I'll, I'll give you a great example of a simple concept that can either play out really well or, or really poorly if you're agile or not agile. And, and Chris just gave one about embracing failure. But I'm going to give you one, which is one of Chris's favorite topics, which is role clarity. Whenever we, w whenever we look at what practices, you know, the OHI measures these 37 behaviors. And when, whenever we look at these, one of the behaviors that always matters a lot is role clarity. Now, a uh, a bureaucratic organization, when they hear role clarity, what comes to mind is a job description, a detailed role description where I've written down everything I want you to do and be accountable for. Which is, is therefore wrong the minute is, you wrote it which down. Which is just, it's, a, it's it, the complete wrong way to think about role clarity. The role clarity we measure is a behavior. It's you talking to someone else about your role and their role and how you work together. And it could be a subordinate, it could be a peer, it could be a supervisor. It's a behavior. Role clarity is clarifying 
what are you accountable for? Where should you spend your time? How should you do your job? How do we work together? What do you get to decide on your own? What do we have to decide together, right? And that's a behavior. And what we're saying when we measure this in the OHI, the 37 practices are measured on frequency. We're saying you have to, you have to clarify roles a lot. And the reason you have to clarify them a lot is because they're changing all the time. So let's, let's, let's just quickly then run through some of those. You mentioned there's 37 categories that the OHI examines. Of those, there was a, a 10, a dozen, that seemed to really stand out for organizations that, that performed well on this sort of organizational agility. Uh, a couple of them were role clarity, yes. Top-down innovation was another that seemed to be big. Um, the ability to capture external ideas. So, so what are some of the critical elements well, Let's talk about those two, because I think sure. they really travel together. Okay. One common uh, 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 issue we see in companies that pursue this is they only focus on bottom-up innovation. Management, you know, here's the, I've, I've got to let my hands off the steering wheel a little bit. We're going to let everything bubble up. And uh, that can pretty easily lead to chaos. And, a bad situation for the people you're asking to innovate because you haven't told them what you'd like them to innovate around. And telling people the, the goals, we'd love to reduce cycle time, we'd love to improve our customer experience, is different than saying, and here's exactly how you will do it. In the absence of that top-down driven guidance, innovation tends not to make as much uh, performance impact or strategic sense. Um, the external uh, uh, sensing really plays into that because uh, the we started all this by saying the world's changing fast. Customers are changing fast. Competitors are changing fast. If senior management doesn't have a good external view, the direction they're likely to give to innovation uh, is, is likely not to be very good. It's likely to be too internally focused. And, and when we say top-down innovation, it includes just basic improvement too. It's not always like these breakthrough innovations. It's any kind of improvement. But the top-down part means the decision makers who matter have agreed what our priorities are and how we're going to resource it. Because without that, you often get initiative overload. Complete everybody working on everything. And it, is, it gets to be chaos quickly. Now, again, in a very small, if you really are a startup with a really small organization, it's all contained. It's all very, very easy to manage because everybody knows everybody and they know exactly what's going on. But when you get these big companies, I mean, people are so willing to launch a new initiative without ever actually having figured out what it's going to take or how many resources it needs. And then you've got everybody kind of working on everything. And I, I have clients who, where people in really critical jobs, where the job they have actually is a true full-time job have a second full-time job doing initiatives. And they end up doing it all badly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're not doing any one thing well. Uh, but it is slightly counterintuitive too, because there seems to be a popular notion that innovation is, let's brainstorm, let's, let's, let's crowdsource, let's just throw everything on the, against well, the wall fine. and we see what's that's fine. That's fine. I, I think that's a great thing to do. But then somebody's got to pick. I mean, right. what, um, on some level, strategy is about choices. And if you are not making choices about what you're going to really do and really commit to and really resource and really spend leadership time on, then you're not really making choices. And 
Um, Top-down innovation is as much about what you're not going to do. When we look at the highest performing companies, there's kind of four clusters, or we call them recipes, that, that really do manage their companies in very different ways and feel very differently. Um, and w one of my uh, favorite things to do is to go into one of them and suggest something that doesn't fit with their model. And mediocre companies always say, boy, that sounds great. And the best companies go, nah, that's not what we do. Yeah. Right. That notion of making choices, knowing who you are. Well, this is, I mean, we, we say there's these four sort of cultural recipes that really work. We're going to do a there's, podcast on that sometime. We should. There's actually thousands of recipes. It's just all but these four <laughs> don't really work. Don't really work. I just haven't found them. Well, this is encouraging too. If you're, if you're uh, encouraging in a couple of levels, one is as a big organization and big institution, there's a bunch of inherent strengths, obviously, to running right. an organization like that that are completely applicable today, more so than ever, and that they're, they're not incompatible with being agile in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and then at the other end of the spectrum, I guess you have these startups uh, that are envied by a lot of major companies because of the degree of agility, because of how fast they're running. Uh, but they have the challenge of implementing the foundation that we're talking about, the operating systems. At some point, you've got to stop running at 100 miles an hour and you have to put some processes in. You have to put in some of the, the foundational elements that large organizations have. Yeah, there, there's a great TED talk, and I, I wish I remembered who gave it because they deserve the credit on, if the startup's so great, why do most of them fail? Right? And some of that is market risk, but some of it is... Uh, you can really predict how well and how long that management model is going to work. And there are some, you know, we have clients right now that have gone through hyper growth through that startup phase, and they're hitting very, very predictable problems in scaling their management approach. So you, you can get to these problems uh, e either way. We're always looking at new experiments because we find them fascinating. I remember, uh, you know, holacracy is a fascinating concept that's getting talked about a lot, and we, we, there's a lot in there to really like. Uh, you hear about it, it sounds too good to be true. Well, you go actually look at it and you realize to run a holocratic uh, company requires a whole different set of rules and structures that maybe don't look like traditional structures, but they're rules and structures. Yeah. You know, there, there's, no, there's no free way to organize tens of thousands of people. Yeah, there's a, for those who don't know it, there's lots of new ways of organizing that aren't the traditional, and one of them is this idea of holacracy. And a holacracy completely throws out the org chart and bosses and this idea of hierarchy. But what it does do is it says everybody's part of some team, but the teams are a lot like, depending on how they work, the teams you're on look a lot like committees. That what they've really done is taking one structural element, which, which most companies over-index on, which is the management hierarchy, the lines and boxes, who, who, is, who reports to whom, who is whose boss, right? They've completely tossed that out the window, which people love. Oh, yes, toss the hierarchy out the window. What they've replaced it with is essentially a massive overlapping committee structure. Now, it has democratized the workplace a bit because when you're the people on those teams have a vote and have a say in the decision but it starts looking an awful lot if it if, if it doesn't work exactly right and it gets too big and complicated it starts looking an awful lot like Congress right it looks like these slow deliberative bodies that are sort of death by committee and you look at holacracy most of them when they get too big and too complex they have the same in a different way, the same bureaucracy problems that a management hierarchy has. You know, when I hear you say that, I realize we, we probably skipped over one belief that's so fundamental to us 
um, that, that we ought to lay it out here, which is um, this is not about style. It's not about culture. It's not about uh, people acting, you know, a, a, you know, a certain way and everybody's got to look and talk like. It's about how you run the place. It's about management process. And it's all measurable. So while there's no easy answers, uh, I think there's no other area besides organization where senior leaders have been trying to manage something without measuring it for so long. And you no longer have to. You can measure, you can measure all of it and you can decide uh, what's working and what's not working. One of my favorite management maxims is do more of what's working and less of what's not, right? Um, you can learn from others, right, as opposed to, uh, you know, feeling like every situation's truly unique. Every situation's unique, but not that unique. The useful way to think about culture is how we do things around here. Now, there's a bunch of really important things that are much deeper, at a much deeper fundamental level when you look at culture from values and thought systems and beliefs. But those are hard to access and they're hard to act upon. The how we run the place version of culture is immediately actionable. And you know what to do and you can measure it. Yeah, it's not a question of right or wrong, it's a question of useful. I, I, I got uh, asked to address a group of executives and I had heard coming in that they, uh, that, that their mindset was that this that culture was equal to values. And so I cheated a little bit and I put up a slide with eight values on it. And I said, I don't want to embarrass anybody. Would anybody admit whose company values these were? And two thirds of the room put up their hand. And of course what we had done is we had taken all their value statements and mushed them together because um, they're just not that different. And I'm not arguing that they're not important. I think they're critically important, but the, it's, it's hard to distill what's different about them in a way that make, makes them actionable. Because they're, they're all the same. Excellence, integrity, respect for people, collaboration, customers. innovation, customers. And you're like, well that's, like all my clients have those values. They're right. all like, right. Arguably common sense to some extent. Yeah. Uh, so, so then, then it comes no, back to the Why don't people include common sense, right? <laughs> it comes back to the how, how do we do things around here, which can be a very unique, a unique uh, culture based on, by company, correct? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I, a story, I, uh, I, was, I was doing a, a, a discussion about this in front of a company, and I had been pulled in with, with very little prep time. And uh, we, we were, we were uh, talking about this notion of these recipes. And I used three big iconic companies. I, I think it was Coke, P&G, and GE as examplers of, of parts of it. Not perfect, but you know, kind of. And uh, the CEO gets kind of a funny look on their face and uh, I wait for him and he raises his hand and he says, uh, I worked at those three companies. So now I'm fairly exposed as a facilitator. And, because he's got all the authority in the world. And he said, do you just explain what I've never been able to tell people? Why good management at one wasn't the same as good management at the other, and had I acted the same way at one place I acted at another, I never would have made it. But the other thing this brings up is we often treat, and our clients often do too, treat, say, organizational structure and culture as different things. And what we're saying is actually no, this is all part of the holistic architecture of a healthy company. And you have, to, you have to treat them as different design levers, but they're all trying to build a high-performing company. And there are different ways to address some of the same things. And one, one of the worst things we do is when we think about organization design, and when our clients do too, they, op, they, they almost immediately go to structure. And then 
they not only fail to design the other elements, like decision processes and linkage mechanisms and culture and things like that, culture in the behavioral sense of how do we, how do we behave and how do we run the place. They also do things like when we cascade down targets and metrics and objectives, we do it cascaded down the hierarchy. And then we're shocked when at lower levels, nobody's collaborating because they all have completely different metrics of what they're optimizing for. And that should not be a surprise. That will happen every time if you do it that way. And most of our clients do. There's lots of easy, now they're not easy to do, but conceptually easy things to do differently. Right. That we just, most of our clients don't, don't do. They just don't know. They just are not thinking about it in, in the way that will help them be more agile. Well, we, you know, we're here to talk about agility, and earlier we brought up project-based organizations, and I, I find it hard to get away from that notion. There may be a better way to, to articulate the model for big companies than, than project-based over time, but for now, I think that's a placeholder. You know, that you, that you use projects to develop new products, to bring th uh, things to market, to approach customers in different ways, to, re to reduce costs. Everybody's life feels like a series of projects. And I think one thing that a well-designed organization does in the broadest sense is enable people to react to that really naturally. If you look, we go back to look at these agile companies and you ap approach them and say, hey, we're going to change this element of our strategy. In an agile company, people can say, great, I'm in. How, how do we start? And, and they know the backbone's there to take care of them. They've seen this movie before. They know they're going to see it again. It's part of their job expectation, as opposed to, whoa, wait a minute. And uh, I think it gets at this notion, you know, we've, uh, we've been telling each other change is hard forever. Um, and there's some truth to that, and, and I get it, right? But um, change that's good isn't as, as hard as change that's, that's bad, right? And, and, uh, and I think uh, a really important thing is uh, that people enjoy being in these agile organizations. All right, I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much for your time today, Aaron and Chris. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Go to mckinsey.com to read our extensive coverage of this issue, as well as our broader examination of how leaders should be thinking about organizing for the future. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.